Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, the Redeemer and Sustainer. Amen. I live with gardeners, but personally know very little about gardening myself. Although I must say I am very familiar and have firsthand knowledge and experience with Murphy's first law of gardening. When weeding, the best way to make sure you are removing a weed and not a valuable plant is to pull on it. If it comes out, you can be sure it is a valuable plant. And of course, there is the corollary to that law. To distinguish flowers from weeds, simply pull up everything. Whatever grows back is sure to be weeds. Fortunately, though, we do not need to be master gardeners or agricultural or horticultural geniuses in order to engage today's parable in the second of our three parable mini-series. What we need instead is to be wildly open and willing to consider how this parable might meet and inspire us today, pulling or maybe even pushing us deeper into the heart of God. Last week, we began with a parable in which Jesus uses the symbol of soil, inviting us to reflect on how we are cultivating lives to be generative and fertile and generous and resilient even amidst the current challenges we face day by day in our homes, in our community, and in the world. I offered a slightly altered version of Brene Brown's lovely parenting manifesto as food for our weary souls, reminding us we are indeed stronger and better together as a community than we could ever be alone. This week and next, we have two more parables, both used by Jesus, to point towards what he calls the kingdom of heaven. But before we go on to look at this week's parable, I must take a short diversion. The words, the kingdom of heaven, or its comparable twin, the kingdom of God, live in our Christian lexicon and are found sprinkled throughout our sacred texts, so I know that they are important. But for years, they have always made me a little uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but my discomfort comes from the militaristic, paternal, and hierarchical inferences of the word kingdom. Oh sure, that was then and this is now, but still, the word just doesn't fit or sit right with me. So much so that I have spent time over the years doing some significant mental gymnastics in order to meaningfully claim and appropriate this part of our tradition. So before going on, I thought I would offer insight from two beautiful companions who have helped me along the way. The first comes from the life-changing work of Latina theologian Ada Maria Isacedillas and then from the inspiring ministry of Jesuit priest, Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries in East Los Angeles. Together, though very different, 
They offer a perspective that helps move me forward in a way that allows me to hear Jesus's message. Maybe they will do the same for you. In the 1980s, while studying at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, I made a friend who would later help me through the work she, she gave her life to in the years that followed. Ada Maria was the first person I ever heard replace the word kingdom with kingdom. She explained that for Latinas, kingdom offered a description of liberation that was self-determining and dependent on the work and love found in a community. Ada Maria would go on to become a leading voice in liberation theology circles, authoring the definitive work of the Mujerista theology, focusing on the specific liberation of Latina women. Kingdom, rather than kingdom, became the language she used to describe God's liberatad, the liberation of God at work among people, the good news for those who suffer at the hands of kings. She wrote that for Latinas, this liberation emerges from the opening up of space where love invites us into kinship, a particular kind of deep and authentic power-sharing connection. Liberation, she wrote, is found not in hope deferred to another world, to life after death, but instead what can be created now and through our common life, through deep connection, one to another." End quote. And then in 1988, Jesuit priest Gregory Boyle founded Homeboy Industries, now the world's largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. This ministry has helped reshape the lives of thousands, not only in East Los Angeles, but through helping 147 other similar programs in the United States and 16 programs internationally, now creating the Global Homeboy Network. Boyle also spends significant time reframing the phrase Kingdom of God. So much so that it has made it into the title of his latest book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship, in which he writes this. Homeboy wants to give rise not only to the idea of redemptive second chances, but also to a new model of church as a community of inclusive kinship and tenderness. At Homeboy Industries, we don't prepare individuals for the real world, we challenge it. For the opposite of the real world is not the unreal world, but the kinship of God. And what if we cease to pledge our allegiance to the bottom line and stood instead with those who line the bottom?" End quote. Through the wonderful, heartbreaking, and inspiring stories of this ministry, Boyle pleads the case that Jesus' teachings on the kingdom are really, at the end of the day, about one thing and one thing only, Jesus' desire that we all may be one. And so, as others have done before him, he claims the phrase, the kinship of God, or for us today, the kinship of heaven, using it so that we, it can become a singular, radical, transformative invitation 
into the possibility that we are connected one to another and to all of creation. And what a timely reimagining for us today amid our medical and social pandemics, not to mention the ongoing divisiveness of our political landscape. What might happen all around us and within us if we could make this shift inside? If we rejected the designations of us and them and just claimed an us? If we rejected the designations of good people and bad people? If we rejected the designations that some are accepted and some are rejected and instead just beloved? So now, with all of that, now let's turn to the first of our two parables, pointing us towards the kinship of heaven. First, a note for the biblical scholars among us. You all know that of all the gospel writers, Matthew is quite enamored with end times. He is the writer that seems singularly obsessed, I think, with doing exactly what I have suggested could be so dangerous. Again and again throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this is the writer that takes every opportunity to introduce God's wrath and judgment for those who don't cut it, to remind us he believes there are, in fact, good people and bad people, wise people and foolish virgins. There are goats and sheep, and today there is wheat and weeds. He is also as strident as they come in his descriptions of who's out and who's in, so much so that as we mentioned last week, following each parable, the gospel writer of Matthew offers an annotated version laying out what the parable really means, according to him, assigning roles and explanations to each element of the story, lest there be any ambiguity. And while we may be able to understand why he did this, writing when he did to early followers of the way, who must have yearned for clarity and meaning and purpose at such a vulnerable time, just decades after Jesus had left them and before they had a critical mass of believers, still, still I think we must push back on the text and rethink how to hear these words today. Ironically, perhaps, I believe that at the heart of this parable today is a message for us that may be the exact opposite of what the gospel writer of Matthew wanted his community to hear. Perhaps this parable for us today could point, point us in a way of trying to, rather than defining the nature of evil or good or bad or right or wrong, instead could point us towards the gift of surrendering our hearts to the paradox of ambiguity and the mystery of faith. And all of that with a posture of humility. Yes, the sower planted good seeds. Yes, there are now weeds strewn among the wheat that puts the ideal harvest the sower had imagined at risk. Ideally, the servants could just rip out the weeds, of course, but the sower knows that to tear out the weeds now risks ruining the maturing wheat as well. And so the sower must wait, living with ambiguity, 
the ambiguity of allowing both the wheat and the weeds to grow on their own until the day of harvest, when they then will be separated. How often do we face this same dilemma in our lives, this kind of living with ambiguity? If by ambiguity we mean uncertainty about our future, or our hesitation to make choices, or our indecisiveness about following one path or another, or maybe our unwillingness to release control and trust what we cannot see or predict with any certainty. If all of these are various descriptions of how and when we find the dilemma of living with ambiguity in our lives, I wonder how this parable might be useful. When we think about it, as much as we may value finding the right answer, making the best choice, choosing the clearest path, the truth is our lives are forever filled with situations where there is unavoidable ambiguity. But how often do we allow ourselves to talk about this reality, let alone find a way to affirm God's goodness in the unknowing, the uncertainty, the questions, and even in the moments of pure confusion, or maybe even frustration. Could it be that this parable, if altered ever so slightly, might help release something in us that we need to hear today? Could breathing new life into this song that Jesus is singing to us paint a picture of freedom and grace, drawing us deeper into our own faith, and confidence that God's intent for our lives is always bigger, wilder, deeper than anything we could ever ask for or imagine on our own. Could a modern day version of this parable free us and inspire our living and loving as seekers of justice on the lookout for kinship of heaven, not a faraway distant place reserved for the extra holy, but to use Gregory Boyle's words, a new model of church as a community of inclusive kinship and tenderness. Here then another version of this parable offered by Episcopal priest, Barbara Brown Taylor. One afternoon in the middle of the growing season, a bunch of farm hands decided to surprise their boss and weed his favorite wheat field. No sooner had they begun to work, however, than they began to argue, first about which of the wheat-looking things were weeds, and then about the rest of the weeds. Did the Queen Anne's lace pose a real threat to the wheat, or could it stay for decoration? And the blackberries? They would be ripe in just a week or two, but they were, after all, weeds, or were they? And what about the honeysuckle? It seemed a shame to pull up anything that smelled so sweet. About the time they had gotten around to debating the purple asters, the boss showed up and ordered them out of her field. Dejected, they did as they were told. Back at the barn, she took their machetes away from them, poured them some delicious lemonade, and made them sit down where they could watch the way the light moved across the field. At first, all they could see were the weeds and what a messy field it was, 
What an embarrassment to them and their profession. But as the summer night wore on, they marveled at the lavishness of the growth. Tall wheat surrounded by tall goldenrod, ragweed, and brown-eyed Susans. The tares and the poison ivy flourished alongside the Cherokee roses and the milkweed, and it was a mess, but a glorious mess. And when it had all bloomed and ripened and gone to seed, the reapers came. Carefully, gently, expertly, they gathered the wheat and made the rest into bricks for the oven where the bread was baked. And then the fire that the weeds made was excellent. And the flour that the wheat was made was excellent. And when the harvest was over, the owner called them all together, the farmhands, the reapers, and all the neighbors to sit down and enjoy a meal together. They broke bread with them, bread that was the final distillation of the whole mess the whole messy, gorgeous, mixed up field. And they all agreed that it was like no bread any of them had ever tasted before and that it was very, very good. Let those who have ears hear. My beloved friends, may today be the day we embrace at least some of the ambiguity in our lives, trusting the wheat and the weeds to grow together. May we resist the temptation to tidy up our gardens into neat rows rather than enjoy the abundance of what may grow in between all that we have carefully planted. May the messy gardens of our lives become living spaces where love invites us into kinship, found not in hope deferred to life after death, but what can be created here and now through our common life, through our deep connections one to another. And may we be so wildly faithful to believe that when we do fall short of resisting our all too human temptation to pull all the weeds or label the good from the bad or judge our brothers or our sisters, trust that God will forgive us, pick us up, brush us off and simply scatter more seeds so that what grows back into our lives is always exquisite, good, and lovely. May it be so.